All right, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2 this morning, Exodus chapter 2, back uh, in the book of Exodus. Uh, last week, we, uh, we looked at the events surrounding Moses' birth. We looked at, at how uh, Pharaoh's daughter pulled Moses from the, the dangers of the Nile, how, how she drew him out of the, the water. And we talked about how that is a picture, too, of how God draws us to, to safety, how Moses didn't swim to her. We don't swim to God. He comes and he gets us. We looked at this idea of biblical typology. Remember we talked about this, the idea of type. And do you remember what the other part is? Type and antitype. All right, well, somebody listen. Everybody else is hanging in there. Just go get the podcast. Maybe you can remember from there. So type and antitype. Type in the Old Testament, antitype in the New Testament. The type is the, the picture shown in the Old. The antitype is the picture fulfilled in a greater, more uh, serious manner and in, in, in a... In a bigger manner in the new. That's the type and the anti-type. So as we read this morning, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about that. I'm telling you, it's going to come up just about every single week. It's going to keep coming up. It's going to come up uh, a lot. So as we read this morning, see if you can spot the type-anti-type relationship. And we won't really point it out until we get towards the end. So Exodus chapter 2, and we're moving on from Moses' birth, and we're fast-forwarding a few years to when Moses was just a little bit Older. So let's start in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. I'm going to be reading from the ESV this morning. I told you I'm going to be going back and forth a little bit between the ESV and the HCSB, different translations depending on uh, kind of how they word some things. We're going to be in the ESV this morning, Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now this little verse right here, we're going to cover the rest of chapter 2 this morning, but starting out this little verse right here, we get a pretty juicy piece of information that really explains a lot to us. A pretty juicy little verse that kind of gives us some things. Moses, who grew up in the palace, remember he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, he was sent to be nursed by his mother, but was to grow up and still live within the palace. So Moses, who grew up in the palace, who had, an, who had the, the access and the means for a path of privilege and luxury, who could have chosen to live his life in a very different way, finds himself compelled to venture out from the palace walls and to notice and, and, and pay attention to what he sees. And when he gets out there, he sees, uh, he, he sees the forced labor of the Hebrew people. But notice what it says there. It says that he observed his own people. And that when someone was being beaten, he doesn't say a slave was being beaten and Moses happened to see it. What it says is that Moses sees one of his own people being beaten. This is very important for us to understand what's going to happen here. This is a big deal. He's under no obligation to be outside of the palace walls. He's under no obligation to come out and to get to know his, his Hebrew heritage. He's under no obligation to go out and do any of these things. He could have stayed within the confines of the wall and done just fine. The king wasn't kicking him out because he had reached a certain age and he didn't look like the other people within the, the king's family. None of that was the case. He voluntarily went to be with his people. And when he saw what was happening, he had to go out to them. He had to act. He had to intervene. Verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
So Moses goes out of the palace. He sees the people, the Hebrew people being oppressed and mistreated. And he doesn't say, oh, that's sad for them. I'd rather not see this. And then heads back to go to the palace and to his comfortable lifestyle. Instead, he sees them and he can't stand what he sees. And he reacts in the moment. Now, we don't know if this is a knee-jerk reaction, an angry reaction. We don't know if he just kind of flew off the cuff or if he saw it, thought what was going on, then made a premeditated act there. What we know is that he had a desire for justice. And we don't know how or, or what happened. But what we do know is Moses killed the man. He killed one of the Egyptians. He killed him for what he saw he was doing to his own people. And for those of us that know the rest of the story, it can be easy to give Moses a pass. After all, he was witnessing a horrible injustice. After all, he was watching something happen right in front of him that was awful. And it can be easy to say, you know what, Moses probably shouldn't have done what he did, but what was happening in front of him was an injustice. So he was justified to act how he did. This is especially true in our culture today. Anything can be justified in the name of justice. Anything can be justified if you think it's bringing justice to a situation. Now, you're the one that gets to decide whether that's just or not, or or someone in the higher ups in the culture get to decide whether something is just or unjust. But once you decide something is just or unjust, just about anything is on the table for you to correct that. The definition of unjust becomes entirely subjective. And anyone can claim an injustice for just about anything, which ironically greatly harms those that have had a true injustice done to them. It can make it extremely hard to sort through what is just and what is unjust in reality versus what is something that is a a slide or something that may be be unjust but isn't worthy of a full-scale reaction. But that's not how our culture sees things today. If something is unjust, everything is on the table to react. And so most would see what Moses did and say, look, Moses maybe shouldn't have done exactly what he did, but he was just reacting on the case of justice. And there's nothing wrong with reacting based on justice. Moses knows this isn't the case, though. And we know this because Moses hides the body. Moses has just committed murder. This Hebrew who grew up in the king's palace has just crossed the line and killed an Egyptian. He can't go back anymore. He is both a murderer and a Hebrew. You see, in the moment when he kills that guard, in the moment when he kills that Egyptian, effectively what he does is he says, I am no longer going to identify primarily as an Egyptian within the king's palace. I am going to identify as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, as one of the slaves. He has crossed the line that he cannot go back from. There's no going back now. So what happens from here? If you haven't read the story, you haven't read ahead, but you know something of Moses' story, you know that he eventually becomes the leader of the Israelites, right? This is Charlton Heston. This is crossing the Red Sea. We'll get there here soon. This is, this is what he becomes, the leader of the Israelites. And you might assume that this is his moment of truth, the catalyst, the man of power, the thing that kicks off the rebellion, the thing that, that starts it all. This man of privilege leaves and identifies with the, the lesser people, the, the, 
the slaves and he leaves that and he begins to right a wrong for his people, the Israelites. This, my friends, is how a revolution begins. This is how the story is written. This is the script of the movie. The, the man of privilege leaves to identify with the, the lesser people, kills one of them, and the revolution is underway. Certainly, this is what Moses thought was going to happen. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving a speech before the Sanhedrin, and he says it this way. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. And then it says, but they did not understand. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation. So when he killed this Egyptian, buried him in the sand, he thought they would say, Oh, Moses, thank you for coming to save us. We've been waiting for someone just like you. Except that's not how the script went at all. This movie goes very different direction. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Have you ever played hide and go seek with a two-year-old? My kids are a little bit older now. My kids are, are 9 and 11, so I, I don't really have the opportunity to play hide-and-go-seek that much with them in the same kind of way. But hide-and-go-seek with a two-year-old is all kinds of fun. It was one of my favorite parts of my kids being little. They loved to play hide-and-go-seek, and I loved to play along. I'd half hide my eyes, I'd count to 10, and they would go hide. And when we first began the game, they would hide by doing this. And they would think, if they can't see you, you can't see them. That's all there was to it. They advance a little bit in the game, and it becomes this. So they're kind of halfway hidden behind something, but you know they're right there. That's how the game begins. And then I would, of course, try to find them. Oh, where could they be? I don't know where you're at. And then pretty quickly, I'd end up tickling them, and they would wonder how I was able to find them. As they got older, the hiding spots got a little bit better. Under the covers or the classic, let's hide behind the curtains routine with my feet sticking out of the curtains. You guys know what I'm, I'm talking about there. At which point, I would usually take a few minutes to steal some time to myself and just randomly yell about every 45 seconds, where are you at? While I was checking my phone or doing something else to, to steal a few minutes or two. And we'll just see how long they go. And they let me have uh, you know, five minutes to myself. And they stand behind the curtain. And that's kind of how it would go. And I would just say, I can't find you anywhere. Can I just tell you, a little two-year-old playing hide-and-go-seek is very much how we look before God. In our sin, in our daily lives, when we know that we've messed up, when we know we've done something that we shouldn't, or when we know that we haven't done something that we should, for most of us, our first reaction is to hide. To look around, to see who else saw it, and to quickly bury it in the sand. When we're young and we first realize we're sinners, it can be like the one-year-old who just throws his hands up and assumes that if, if, God can't, if I can't see God, then God can't see me. And we would try to push God away and we would say, no God, I'm not, I'm not going to deal with you right now. I'm going to worry about my own thing. I'm not worried about whether I've done right or wrong. I'm just going to pretend if I don't see you, you don't see me. 
But anybody who is a parent of kids, you know that that stage doesn't last long. Because kids are really good at covering up their sin. They're really, really good at it. And they're really, really good at it probably because we've taught them really well how to do it. It doesn't take much. We may graduate from the, the, the next step, the hands over our eyes stage, to the hiding behind the curtain stage, but God is never fooled. He knows where we are at all times. He's never lost track of us. We aren't pulling one over on Him. There was never a moment where He didn't know where we were. There was never a moment where He was wondering, oh, where could Tony be? I don't know where he's at. I don't know what he's done. Man, he got away from me for just a minute. I I know that something must have happened because he's hiding from me, but I don't know what it is. No, he knows where we are at all times. No matter how well I tuck behind that curtain, he's never lost me. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden, right? What was their first reaction when they realized that they had sinned? They hid from God. But God did not have to look for them. He did not have to go and find them. They were right there in front of him the whole time with their feet sticking out from the bushes. He knew exactly where they were. The psalmist knows this about God too. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Friend, this morning, God knows you. He knows you. You don't need to pretend that you've gotten away with something this morning. He knows you, whatever it is, whatever that thing is that comes to your mind right now when you're thinking, oh, I hope somebody doesn't know this about me, God knows. Whatever it is that comes to your mind as soon as I say this, you didn't get away with it. Skimming books at work, rage against your husband this week, the pictures you looked at on your phone, the jealousy and envy in your heart as you scrolled through Instagram, the worry and fear as you watch the news, the bad-mouthing of your wife at Bible study, the extra glass of alcohol at the end of the night that was just one too many, the anger at your kids, the disrespect of your parents. You haven't gotten away with it. God knows. Now, there may be a moment in which no one else knows. It may never come to light. Although it probably will. Just ask Moses. You may have buried it in the sand. Your secret may be safe with your discipleship group, but you haven't gotten away with it. God knows. God knows. Even before a word is on our tongue, God knows it. Isn't that terrifying? Isn't that sobering? Maybe you've hidden it well. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're much better than just hiding behind the curtain. Maybe you've graduated to the next level and you're, you're wearing all black. You've got the black face paint on. You've got the black beanie on. And you're hiding in the woods in the middle of the night with no full moon and no one can see you. But you're not hidden. God knows. 
Psalm 90, verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. It's not really the verse you probably came here to hear this morning. You probably wanted to come here and just tell me about how good God is, tell me about how good I am, and then we'll go about our week. But listen, you need to know that your sin is ever before God. Your iniquities are set before Him, the secret sins in the light of His presence. We are hiding something because we have done something wrong. Perhaps you know that well and you know the details of it and you can lay it out theologically or perhaps you're here this morning and you can't tell me anything theologically about how it works but you sense the shame, you sense the need to hide something. There's something you just don't want people to know because you just sense that it's not right. But you know and so does God. And I want to be as clear as I can here. God knows and His wrath will appease justice. But the good news this morning is that the story keeps going. And so we'll keep going this morning too. I want you to take note of what makes Moses flee. You see, the way that we tell the story just kind of off the cuff as we go throughout the story is like, oh yeah, Moses, Moses murdered somebody and he had to take off into the wilderness for a while. We'll look at that here in just a second. But, but that's not the whole story. Because what you see here is that, that, that what happens is something else ha- plays out in front of Moses. Do you, do you see what it, what it said? If you, if you go back to, to verse uh, 13 and 14. He goes out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews are struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Verse 14. He answered, who made you a prince of me? Who made you boss? Who made you king? You think just because you show up here, rich boy, out of your palace, and you kill one Egyptian, however you decided to do that, you think all of a sudden that we're supposed to praise you and say, all hail Moses. Well, you know what, Moses? Go on with your rich self. I'm not interested in listening to you. You don't know what it's like to be me. If I want to kill this guy, my fellow Hebrew, I'll kill him, and you are not going to stop me. I know you killed the other guy. What, you're going to kill me too? And suddenly Moses is quite nervous. Suddenly Moses is very, very nervous. He knows he's in trouble. But the reason that he runs is not just because he murdered someone. It's because he murdered someone, but his people didn't care. They mocked him. He tries to intervene in this other fight, and they they say, what do you think you're going to do here? You don't know me. I'll settle this however I want. And immediately, this is where Moses knows things have gone south for him. He thinks he's hidden it. He's covered it up. The only other person that could have known was the man that he had saved. And surely the man that he had saved wasn't going to tattle on him. Surely that his secret was safe with him. But words got around the camp that the kid that grew up in the palace is back. And he's gotten his hands dirty in a hurry. And he knew he was in trouble. He knew Pharaoh would be angry. And unfortunately for Moses, his people didn't have his back. 
So then what's Moses going to do? Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So what does Moses do? He runs. He runs to get away from the life that he had known. And he runs to get away from the people that he thought were going to be his. The people he thought were going to welcome him with open arms. So Moses doesn't just leave because he killed somebody. He leaves because he was rejected by his own people. He leaves because the people that he intended to save with his own hand said, we don't want you, Moses. And they mocked him and they said, you're not my king, you're not my boss. And he ran and he hid. And he wanted to pretend that none of it had happened. He wanted to run and to hide. He wanted to get away and find a, start, find a way to start over where nobody knew him. And it kind of worked. Kind of. God hasn't been fooled. But let's just give this a moment and see what it looks like when Moses makes another start. So let's read verse 16. Moses has just sat down by a well. In verse 16 it says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may come and eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and they called his name Gershom. For he had said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses runs away and he gets his fresh start. Moses comes and he's immediately thrust into another situation where he's just an outside observer and he's the one that has to intervene. He's the one that has to save. And he comes to save these women who are about to be attacked. He again shows himself to be the man of mercy and just at the right time and just at the right moment. Except this time he succeeds and instead of getting mocked for it, he gets a pat on the back for it. Actually, he gets more than a pat on the back for it. He gets a whole wife out of the deal. He gets a wife, and this time, the results are much better for Moses on this go-around. Things go well for him. And we're not given much commentary about Moses here. We're not told if God was pleased with him because he was a man of mercy. We're not told if Moses was forgiven for his murder, if he had repented. We're not told if Moses was seeking any of this out, if he was looking to be this kind of just warrior. The only thing we know is that his father-in-law was impressed and that when Moses had a son, he gave him a name that sounds like the name for sojourner because Moses knows that's what he is now. A man without a home. A man without a people. A man without anyone or anything, yet God has seen fit to give him a family and a son. And even in the midst of having this new family and this son, Moses feels very much alone and very much forgotten. He is left out and he is cast away. He is a foreigner in a foreign land, a man without a home. You ever feel like that? Man, I do. Man, there are days that I just feel like everybody's got something going for them and I got nothing going for me. Where I can look around and I can feel like the whole world's got a friend and I'm just scraping by looking for a glass of water in a well in a desert. 
This world can be lonely. The pain can be real. And it can be beaten into you day after day, week after week. And Moses felt it. Despite the blessing of a family and a son, he felt as though he was alone, a stranger in a strange land. He wasn't the only one that felt this way, though. Because the story shifts at the end of this chapter, and we start to see that Moses wasn't the only one that felt as though he was alone. That felt as though God had put him in a place where he was searching after something he was never going to find. Moses wasn't the only one. Look in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel... And God knew. And God knew. So the people of Israel felt a bit like Moses. They felt forgotten, forsaken, beat down, and hopeless. They cry out, but they don't see a thing change for them. Things just get worse for them. They feel like God doesn't care, God doesn't hear. Does He even see them? Does He even know? They're supposed to be God's chosen people, but they are a foreign people in a foreign land with no prospects before them. God might as well be an absentee parent that's forgotten all about his children. And then the end of verse 24 and verse 25 has got to be one of the most poignant verses in all of Scripture. God remembered, and then God saw, and God knew. God knew. God knows. He always knows. Have you ever been in that place where you are just heartbroken? Been in that place where you are just at the bottom of your emotions? You don't know where to turn. You can't look up. You can't tell what is up and what is down. You feel like you could cry at the any moment that... that You are just in this place where everything seems to have fallen apart and all you can see is the dark that is around you, the pain that is around you, the suffering that is around you. Maybe you've had a terrible fight with your spouse. Maybe you're thinking about a child that is far from God. Maybe it's been at a funeral or at a graveside. Maybe it's been while you've been confessing your sin to someone. Maybe it's been after a miscarriage or a terrible diagnosis. I don't know what's driven you to that place before in your life. I don't know how you got there. But you can identify with Moses and you can identify with the people of Israel and you can say, God, where are you? I'm crying out here, but I feel as though I'm lost. I feel as though I don't have anywhere to go or anyone to go to. If you've ever been in that moment and someone has just grabbed you, pulled you close, pulled you to their chest, and just hugged you, just held you there while you wept, You have no words. 
If you did have words, they wouldn't help anyway. You just, you just know that they know. And that's really all you need at that moment, to know that somebody knows. That's what this verse is right here. God remembered, and God knows. It is a spectacularly beautiful picture of the compassion, the care, and the mercy of God. Friend, there's another picture of God you need to see this morning. Yes, in your sin, God knows. You have hidden nothing from Him. He knows it all. But in the midst of that, in your complete desperation, in your loneliness, in your pain, in your suffering, God knows. He knows and He will pull you to His chest. He will put His arms around you and He will hold you there while you sob and while you grasp for air and while you try to figure out which way is up and which way is down. Because He knows. Some of you this morning desperately need to know that picture of God. Not a God who is like Santa Claus who's got a list for you and trying to figure out which list you land on. Not a God who's just a divine police officer trying to figure out where you've broken the law and how he can punish you. You need a picture of a God who knows, who will pull you close and hold you there. Some of you just need to know that God is like that. Now, some of you may be too proud to just let yourself go like that. Crying's for wimps. Admitting how much you need that is for somebody else. But it's in that very moment, in those moments when you say, I've got to have you here, God, because I can't make it any further. It's in those moments that we find salvation. Where where we know just how desperately we need a God that knows. You say, well, wait a minute. What what about His wrath and His justice and His anger? Does that just disappear? I thought that's what happened when God knows everything. His wrath. You just quoted the verse just a second ago. What happened to that? Do we just pretend that that's not there? No, absolutely not. His wrath is there and it will be appeased. But here's the thing. If you'll come to this place where you know how much you need Him, if you will call out to Him, He will answer. If you ask for forgiveness and turn away from those sins, He will remember them no more, is what the Bible says. Is that not amazing? The God who knows all will choose to forget all. And do you know why? The writer of Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because we have a God who knows, a high priest who is, who is ours, a God who, who, who knows, and, and, and he knows not just because he knows everything, although he does, but he knows because he came and he lived among us and he lived it. He knows. He doesn't just know our loneliness and the longing of our hearts from afar. He knows because He lived it. He knows the pain and the suffering and the agony and the temptation. Why? Because He came. 
And he knows. Because he came, and just like Moses, he, will be reje- he was rejected by his people. He left his privileged position as a son of the king, full of power, authority, and the riches of heaven. And he came to a people that would mistreat him. He came to set his people free, and the people preferred the darkness rather than the light. And the people told Moses and the people told told Jesus, who do you think you are telling us how to live, how to believe, and how to worship? You're not the boss of me. And they too would reject Jesus just like they did Moses. But unlike Moses, Jesus was innocent. Yet he suffers and he dies alone. But because of that, the writer of Hebrews keeps going, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This morning you need to know that God knows. He knows what you need. He knows what you've done. And because of that, He knows what you need. And He knows exactly when you need it. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you're praying for. And you feel like God is not there. But you need to know that God knows. I don't know what has you on the verge of tears or on the verge of anger. I don't know what has you on the verge of bitterness or the depth of depression and loneliness. I don't know. But God knows. You need to know that this morning. Some of you this morning need to find a friend or a child or a wife and you need, to, you need to give them a hug. And you need to tell them that you hear them, that you see them, that you love them. And as best you can, you need to let them know that you know and that you're there. Some of you need to know that God hasn't forgotten you this morning. That He knows See, the idea that God knows is either the most terrifying thing you've ever heard or the most glorious thing you've ever heard. And the only thing that separates those two things is the man Jesus Christ in the middle. That's it. So God knows. Does that make your heart shudder in fear or leap with joy? That's the God we worship this morning. The all-knowing God who comes to deliver us right in the time of need. Because he knows. What amazing God we worship. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we praise you that you didn't learn anything about us. You just knew. Before the word was on our tongue, you knew. Before we knew our need for a Savior, you knew. Before we were even formed, the Savior had come and made a way for us to know you because you knew that we needed it. Father, this morning, if the idea that you know is terrifying to anyone sitting out here, I pray that they would feel the weight of the wrath and the justice of God, the anger that you have. I I pray that they would feel the weight of that, but that they would also know the hope 
of a Savior who knows. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning I'll be standing at the back. If you need somebody to pray with you, if you need somebody to just just help you give words to the fact that God knows, I'll pray with you. We'll have others that can pray with you. If you're terrified this morning, maybe for the first time realizing that you haven't gotten away with it, we'll pray with you to the God who already knows. I'd love nothing more than for you to walk out of here knowing that God that loves you and that has made a way for you.